0: It's hard to imagine anyone wanting to harm a redwood on purpose. They're the most recognizable trees in the United States. The bald eagle of flora, the George Washington of botany. But unfortunately, they carry their reproductive tissue called burls around their midriff at the base of the tree. This interesting looking wood is easy for humans to access and people will pay a lot of money for it to make products. When I searched redwood burls on eBay, there were results for coffee tables, bowls, and clocks. Redwood burl poachers work at night. They go into the protective parks in Northern California and slice off the burl from the tree. They might also cut the whole tree down to reach higher up burls. With chunks missing, the redwoods are left more vulnerable to disease and insects. Redwoods can reproduce in a few different ways, including cones, But new trees will sprout from burls, and when they're removed, it's one less way the species can carry on. I'm journalist Ellen Earhart and this is Plant Crimes, a non-fiction podcast about how plants can be criminals, victims, and detectives. This is one of the victim stories, though it ends more optimistically than you probably think. That may or may not be because of research by Stephen Pierce, Associate Professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Florida International University, and Maria Martiche. Associate Professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at California State University, San Bernardino. They started studying redwood burl poaching a few years ago. Here's Pierce.
1: My name is Stephen Pietish. I did my PhD at Rutgers University, the School of Criminal Justice uh, in New Jersey, and I was trained as a crime scientist slash environmental criminologist. Environmental criminologist in our field does not mean the study of environmental crimes. It is the study of how our environments, our contexts, can inhibit or enable deviant behavior.
0: He called up Dr. Marteishi, who is currently on sabbatical in Spain.
2: My name is Nerea Marteache. I'm originally from Spain. I'm an associate professor of criminal justice at Cal State University, San Bernardino. And my background, I have a law degree from Spain, but then I got my PhD at Rutgers in New Jersey in criminal justice. And after that, I started working at CSU, where I am now in California.
0: They studied the spatial and temporal factors in redwood burl poaching. In other words, when and where it
1: happened. 95% of the burls that were removed from trees, I think it might even be more, were all 10 feet or lower from the ground, the lowest hanging fruit. They weren't willing to remove burls that were 50 feet high. Only one instance was a tree removed where the burl was essentially about 50 feet high. This was done on US 1, which is the highway that cuts through the national park. These offenders who did it, they cut the whole tree down. The tree fell over the highway, so no traffic can go through for about three days. Oh, Um, wow. It's a pretty extreme example, but most offenders are not willing to cut down a tree for a burl. They're willing just to target those trees that have burls that are low to the ground.
0: In other words, like a lot of us. Redwood Brill poachers almost always did the least amount of work possible in order to achieve their ends. Here's Martasia and how she thinks about crimes like this.
2: If you think about a pickpocket, it's going to go for the easy, like the tourist displaying their cash and their cameras and expensive phones instead of going for the more difficult one. So in terms of um, behavior, this is pretty normal behavior for offenders in general. Actually human beings in general. We we tend to go for the easy goal instead of the more difficult one. <laughs> yeah,
0: that makes sense. I think in the paper you said it's like a pickpocket versus Correct. a bank robbery, right? Like the bank well, robbery would be the hard advanced thing unless it was a really terribly secured bank or something. I don't know. <laughs> even in bank
2: robbery, they are gonna go for banks that have less security features than those that are absolutely Horrifying in that sense. So, we tend to go for the activity that has less risks and more rewards. And that's just how we act. Offenders act the exact same way.
0: There's some important history about the towns around Redwood National Park that you should know at this point. The people there have a history of working in the lumber industry. After the region was turned into a national park, the economy grew sluggish, drug problems developed. Burrow poaching is a way to make easy money.
1: There's a town embedded in the middle of the national park, and we think they're mostly responsible for much of the incident. So the offenders are coming from this uh, small town. So this used to be a logging town. There has always been some type of animosity uh, between the locals and the national park, because the national park wasn't created until, I believe, 1968. So this used to be a natural resource for the town. It used to be their jobs as loggers. Uh, Once the National Park was created, it took away this economic opportunity. So a lot of people, I think, moved away over time uh, because they had to find a job. But for the people left behind, this is one way I I feel like, just based on talks with the rangers, that they absolutely hate the National Park and there's almost no one talks about or would be willing to talk about burl poachers. Uh, Essentially, snitch on their fellow community members, even if they knew this information of who did it and when they did it. This is one way of kind of getting back at the national park. Uh, They also have a pretty bad crystal methamphetamine problem there. So, there's some drug addiction, and many of the rangers believe that the offenders who are doing this are addicts and they're trying to get their next quick fix and this is an easy way of doing it removing a burl they go to a, a local burl shop and they get quick cash for the product
0: in a lot of situations like these the offending product just becomes illegal you can't buy or sell turtle shell or ivory in most places but redwood products and especially redwood burl products are still easy to sell they're not listed on cites Pierce and Marteschi had to think of different ways to advise the rangers on how best to protect the redwoods. So what were some of your recommendations to the rangers after you did the set of studies?
1: So in addition, we found in terms of environmental features that the areas with a greater number of redwood targets were the ones that were at higher risk of poaching. So that means offenders are wary and mindful of where there's going to be a greater chance of finding suitable Burls uh, within the national park because it's not, the redwoods are not evenly distributed within the national park. Some areas have a greater concentration of redwoods. And we also found that the closer proximity to a greater number of burl shops, which operate as licit markets, but also operate as illicit markets because they don't ask questions when someone comes in with a burl. There's no identification that's required in terms of a photocopy, which is standard practice if you go to any pawn shop in the United States. There's no requirement in California to have any of this paperwork. So if an area is closer to uh, burl shops, a greater number of burl shops, uh, it has more redwood targets and, is cl- and has more roads cutting through, particularly you know primary, secondary, and tertiary roads, those areas were at higher risk. Well, we created a, a risk map using one-square-kilometer grid cells, and we suggested that really there's only a couple of areas within the park that are at, at the highest odds of poaching activity based on previous poaching incidents and these environmental features. So if you're going to allocate resources, you should be doing so within these particular areas of the national park. Really, less than 5% of the areas were at a super high risk. You have to close down these burl shops that are operating in, in an illegal fashion, which is very hard to do. They tried to pass a law at the state level to make the crime of burl poaching from a misdemeanor to a felony the california governor decided not to there is no requirement for photo identification when selling redwood burl to any type of shop that would obviously make it more difficult there would be you're increasing the risk that someone would get caught because you're leaving evidence behind so other things they could do any intervention should be done in the high-risk areas we've identified in our map. The problem with the national park is that there are a whole number of roads that cut through the park that cannot be gated at night. It's impossible. We, we talked to the rangers about this. Only the main entrance is gated. So all these small roads can cut through the park, and you can drive within them at any time. So you are leaving that opportunity for poachers to go in at any time they want and to poach redwoods without really being detected. So this makes it more difficult.
0: You um, recommended that they shut down a road, right? And then they did for a little bit, right?
1: Right. So that was a very good example of what we call situational crime prevention. You are removing the, the greatest opportunity to poach. So there was a number of incidents that happened on this one scenic road. So it's called Newton B. Drury Parkway. So they decided to close it down for a couple of months. So at night, they were able to close it down by just barricading it from the north and south entrances. And that was—they just became desperate. The problem, of course, was when it comes to tourist season, which is the summer— They don't have enough rangers to, you know, block this road at every night because they have to be at other places. So they decided to scrap that idea by the time tour season came by. But that was a temporary solution. We suggested to kind of build on that, to have some sort of gated entrance where you would be given a ticket as if you were going into a parking garage. And it can measure the amount of time it takes from going through the first gate, to exiting the gate on a high-risk road. This one was the Newton B. Jury Parkway. So if it's supposed to take, let's say, two minutes going at the speed limit, and you come out of it 60 minutes later, right, that would send some type of ping to headquarters to check it out, right? At the very least, even if you're not a poacher, your car might have broken down in the middle of the road, and the police are there to help you.
0: In the end, bro poaching mostly stopped. No one's really sure if that was because of this research, societal changes, the heightened vigilance of the park rangers, or media attention. Marteschi talked about how this was a crime of convenience. Maybe at one point, stealing redwood burls just became more difficult and therefore less worth it. What
1: I'm interested in is whether these kind of crime uh, interventions, whether they actually work or not in the field. So right now, there haven't been any incidents since 2014 2015 they believe that because of all the media attention the local and national all the calls that burl shops received they actually were deterred and scared journalists were saying why are you allowing this to happen right so apparently the burl shops were getting calls around the clock and it got really annoying to them so they feel like there's an increased pressure on them and more scrutiny of their practices And apparently, some of the burl shops actually closed in the last seven years because of the little business they had.
0: I did one more interview for this episode that I wanted to share with you. I went to downtown San Francisco to speak to Kirk Crippens, a photographer who spent many years documenting the Redwood Burls with his creative partner, Gretchen Le
3: I'm Kirk Crippens. I'm a photographer. We are at Rayco Photo Center, which is a San Francisco photography institution which is actually closed to the public now, but I still have access to it. And I'm doing some work here, uh, working on an application, scanning some film tonight. And Ellen came tonight uh, to do this interview. And when we looked around Rayco, she thought that this small uh, darkroom space that we're in uh, might be uh, good for sound and for recording this interview.
0: Like Stephen Pierce, Cribben heard about the burl poaching from a news report.
3: Gretchen and I worked together for many years in different capacities, and we had collaborated on a prior project. And she also helped me just in the background for many years with editing and advice. And when the Burls project came up, it was something that I originally thought of because I had visited the redwoods when I read a news report about what was happening that that some of the ancient redwood trees were being poached on uh, by thieves with chainsaws who weren't taking the entire tree or necessarily cutting down the tree although they did at times but they were shaving off what's called the burl this knobby growth that the normally at the bottom of the tree and I wanted to do the project with Gretchen because we had talked about uh, working with a large format camera for years. I'd been working with large format four by five, but I'd not worked it with eight by 10 before. And we both had an aspiration to do a work with an eight by 10 camera, which shoots eight inch by 10 inch sheets of film. It just seemed like a culmination of years that we had put in together and thinking about work and in editing work together. And then we did a portrait project together in Palm Springs. This seemed like a good collaborative opportunity.
0: So do you remember the first time you read about this in the news? Like, what were you doing? Where did you read it? What was that Yeah, like?
3: absolutely. I remember. I was scrolling through one of my social media feeds and I saw an article and a photograph. The photograph, I remember it distinctly, is a color photograph of a ranger standing next to one of the trees that was severely damaged. uh, One of the trees where they had cut off giant chunks as far as they could lift their chainsaw and all the way down to the the ground. And the ranger had spray painted the tree when they had found it. The damage with, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, with the date maybe the date that they found it. And they took this photo uh, for scale of themselves next to this damaged tree. And so you had, when you look at the burl cuts in color, uh, which is not the way we chose to work, we chose to work in black and white. If you look at them in color, the inner part of the tree on a freshly cut or poached on tree, uh, has a, a red and a yellow and a golden. It, it looks like a wound. It looks like the skin has been peeled away. And then with the drama of this bright pink spray paint on it with a date, I think it was 5.30 or something like that. Uh, and then the, the ranger, dwarfed by the tree, but even dwarfed by the giant poach cut scar on the tree. And so it just so happened that I had been on a trip recently that took me from Portland back to San Francisco Bay Area where I live. And I had visited the redwoods during that. It was a road trip in my car. And so I had just been in on the sacred ground, if you will, of these giant redwoods standing in awe of their majesty. And I was moved. I was moved at finding that photo and reading the story and shocked. I had no idea that it was happening or would happen or could happen. You know, sometimes when I feel like I should do a project, when I think, oh, this is for me to do, or in this case for us to do, Gretchen and I, when i come to these projects sometimes it's a research and looking into and thinking about for many months because i know what the commitment is if i say yes to a project it's yes to all the expense all the time all the energy and all the work and research and connections that it takes to manifest these projects but i will say for live burls it was immediate As soon as I read the article, I knew that I wanted to do something about it, do a project. I didn't know the details or exactly how I wanted to work, but I knew that I wanted to do something.
0: Was your next step to approach Gretchen about it, or did you get in contact with
3: the Ranger, or what was your next step? My next step was to approach Gretchen and to talk about it and to talk about some of the initial logistics. And I'm skipping ahead because it took a lot of research to get out into the field. When we went out into the field, when we finally got to that point where we were shown where these scarred trees were, we had to consider if we wanted to do color because color was very dramatic with these scars. But one thing that Gretchen and I discussed from the very beginning was if we're going to take the redwoods on as a subject, the redwoods have been photographed forever as long as photography has existed. And there is a strong, big history in master photographers going out and photographing, in effect, these quote unquote same trees. And the master photographers often worked with these large format cameras. And so one reason why we specifically decided to use the 8x10 and to go with the black and white was to continue that conversation that had been going on in photography, with these trees.
0: Talking to Crippens about his creative process was fascinating. The team put so many years of work into the photographs. And um, so you were out there studying the burl scars so intensely. What did you learn about the poachers and the poaching process while you were out there studying
3: your subjects? So when you drive through Oric which is the last little town before you come to the Redwood National Park if you're driving from the south to the north, Oric is filled with burl shops. So that's the first thing you notice. Like, here's all these shops that are selling redwood souvenirs and they're selling redwood burl. Well, that's because there's a legal trade in redwood burl. If you own private land that has redwood on it, you can harvest your trees or your burl, you own it. That is an interesting balance to the fact that it's a lot like ivory. When ivory was a legitimate souvenir or decorative object, there was a legal trade in ivory and people would buy it or collect it, uh, bring it home from their trip. But then the problem arose when people were poaching elephants. And of course, now we know the problem arose because the elephants are so valuable just as a being. Why would we want to do that? But of course, it takes us a while to realize these things as humans, it seems like. But it's the same with the burls. The burls have always had the legal trade. Well, of course, the problem at this point in time in history is that many of these old-growth trees have been harvested already. And so now there is a black market that has come up, like in so many other industries, around burl wood. And so we also found out that most, if not all, of the poaching came from people in the local area. It wasn't necessarily people coming from far and wide to steal the burls. It was people from that area who are familiar with it and in some ways it also came out that they feel entitled to this wood it's something maybe they've grown up with it's a way to make a quick buck my understanding is that a beautiful big slab of burl wood can get bring thousands of dollars of cash we also found out that there's a drug problem in the area and so it's possible that some of the people who were stealing these burls needed quick cash for whatever reason. And so we could see this as well. And we talked about trying to expand the project to include other elements, uh, the burl shops. We did some photography in the burl shops and in the tourist spots around that area. If you go to a tourist sh- shop and around the Redwood National Park, they sell burls inside little terrariums because if you take a piece of burl and this is interesting if you take a piece of burl and you put it in water a redwood tree will sprout out of the side of the burl it is a living piece of the tree that has the ability to regenerate itself and we found out that most redwood trees are not created from the cones and the seeds that come out of the cones on the redwood trees most redwood trees are regenerated from the former redwood tree and the growth coming out of the burl and the burl is rich with everything it needs to grow another redwood tree so in these souvenir shops there in these little plastic terrariums are slabs of burl supposedly legally harvested off private land growing little trees out of them and people buy them and take them home. And if you miss them, you can keep them alive for a while. Of course, at a certain point, unless it has the right environment, it's not going to survive. But I'm sure that's a fun thing to do with your kids and take something home like that. And hopefully it is harvested in a sustainable way through a legal system. And so we looked at all these things and we were learning about all these different elements that contributed to this moment in time where people were stealing burls from the protected national park from ancient 2 or 3,000-year-old trees and why that might be and how that could come to be. And we thought about adding that to the project, but honestly... It was all that we could do to get the 28 photos that represented the poached trees in the way that we were working that ended up being in the book, live burrows, within the many years that it took to make these photographs and then to print those by hand in the darkroom, so that we can have exhibitions of this work. Now, I could see doing a follow-up project or an expanding on project we're not working on that, but it's definitely a ripe subject. But we pared it down to this one way of working. And I really f- feel like we accomplished what we set out to accomplish. Working with photo history, working in an analog, a handmade way, hand making the prints. In exhibition, there's a beauty to them, but there's also a sadness to them. In the book form, it's not a a book that covers every aspect of it, but it's not meant to. It's a certain view of this, but it harkens to the entire issue, just by having the simplicity of the form of the beautiful trees with the scars.
0: Grippins and I ended up talking for a long time about the creative process and the purpose of art. As I reached the end of the first season of this podcast, I've been thinking a lot about why I made it. This summer, the writer Rachel Syme tweeted, New York is going to be underwater by 2070, or at least many parts of it will be. You're a historian right now, just to be living here. Take notes. This is the end of something. This tweet doesn't just apply to New Yorkers. We have reached an ecological tipping point. The species that are here today may not last through the next few decades. Ecosystems will change dramatically as temperatures rise. And some participants in our natural world are getting a lot more attention than others. I pursued this project as a journalist to interview people and learn about these stories. That is 100% not why Crippens pursued his years-long photography project. And what does it mean to you to have created something of lasting value that is a piece of art that people will continue to talk about, about our changing environment. Of course, the Redwoods are in danger of more than just this burl poaching. We live in a rapidly changing environment. Did you think about that while you were photographing them? Or have you thought about it
3: since? You asked me what it means to me. Um, Number one, the process means a lot to me. The journey that you go on in creating this work, the time spent with the trees, the time spent to slow down and do it in the way that we did it, means everything to me as a human being who is on a journey to understand himself and the world. So to work in this way, in this torturous, slow, difficult, oh, this is taking forever way, but to finish it, means something to me just personally, just as a human. And the project itself is full of purpose for me. I have a sense of purpose with my life when I'm working on these projects. It makes me feel good and grateful to be alive and in tune with what is happening in a way that i don't know how to connect with without doing this work but that is in some ways a thread through all of my projects some of them are easier to create and some of them i work with a camera that's less difficult and some of them i don't need to go into a dark room and some of them i just scan the film so there's nothing wrong with any of these ways of working but all of them come from a place inside of me that is trying to connect with something bigger than myself something outside myself and i am the i am the conduit when i'm doing this work and that's why sometimes i take many months to decide, am I going to do that? In effect, should I do that? And that's why it was a little bit surprising with Live Burrows that I knew immediately, yes, do that. But that's great, right? When you have a moment, when you just know one thing that you're going to be doing. Now, I didn't know everything about it or what all that would mean, but I knew in a deep place that I wanted to, to do this work. And it gave me permission to go and photograph the redwood trees, which are over-photographed, have been photographed for decades, are being photographed right now. And I would not take the redwood trees on as a subject. I do not feel like I have the, the reason to photograph the redwood trees in general because they have already been photographed. But when something like this comes up, when there is a poaching or a scarring or a tension in our society or something that gives me a conduit to take one of our icons, one of our great things that we as humanity have, and all of a sudden I have access to it because something has happened so that I can take it on as a subject there's that thread there. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, I have permission. Now the redwoods can be my canvas. Where without this happening, I would not choose to go and photograph the redwoods. It's already done. But the scarring, the poaching, this particular tension in our society and all of the social issues that come up as a result of thinking about that, all of a sudden, there's my pathway into something that I would love to... To photograph. It's full of purpose.
0: That's a wrap on season one! Thank you to every person listening to this, and thank you especially to all the kind people who left reviews. This podcast has been a learning process for me, and I appreciate you sticking with me and supporting it. Thank you to Nikki Duong, who has shown unflagging interest in this project and has spent many hours listening and editing and talking to me about it. Also thank you to Nikki for the incredible art she made throughout the season. Thank you to everyone who's given an episode of First Listen and provided feedback, including Leslie Nemo, Larissa Zimbaroff, Elena Lacey, Daniela Bly, Zara Stone, John Agnew, Eleanor Cummins, Brian Gutierrez, Serena Ashbani, and Jill Mertensmeyer. I am making plans for season two! I am very excited! Follow Plant Crimes on Twitter and Facebook for more updates, or you can follow my plant Instagram. It's at EllenAirplant at symbol L-N-E-L-L-E-N-A-I-R-P-L-A-N-T. You can also support me on Patreon. I've kind of been neglecting it because podcasting is incredibly time-consuming, but I'm excited to make some special gifts for my patrons now that the season is over. If you have any comments or tips, please email me at plaincrimes at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope to catch you back here for season two! Bye!